Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Education. My name is Jonathan Haber, and today we're going to be talking about Examining Teach for All, International Perspectives on a Growing Global Network. The book is edited by my guest, Matthew Thomas, a senior lecturer in Comparative Education and Sociology of Education at the University of Sydney, Australia, Emily Rauschenberger, a postdoctoral research fellow at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK, and Catherine Crawford Garrett, an Associate Professor of Teaching Education at the University of New Mexico. Matthew, Emily, Catherine, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us here. Before we get started, we'll, we'll dig into the history of TFA, which is originally Teach for America and then later Teach for All. But what we do, can you talk a little bit about your decisions about why to write a book about this subject and how you went about finding people to explore the TFA phenomenon in different countries? Yeah, sure. I can tackle that question. I think all of us have been really interested in teacher education more broadly for a number of years. And uh, each of us in our own way have particular experiences with Teach for America or Teach for All and other affiliates of the Teach for All network. And so I think based on these experiences, we all independently became really interested in this kind of increasingly global phenomenon of alternative forms of teacher education, sometimes called alternative routes to teaching or alternative routes to teacher education. So it was really a coming together of the three of us as co-editors initially that served as the impetus for this book. And so Katie and I connected initially because I read her book focused on Teach for America several years ago and, and was very impressed by it. And then I think she randomly reached out to me, if I'm not mistaken, via email to work on a small project together for the Oxford Encyclopedia of Education, looking at Teach for All and teacher education and, and their kind of relationship and impact together. And so we developed a, a collaborative relationship a number of years ago. And then that kind of growing interest that we both had in Teach for America specifically coalesced into thinking about this project and connecting with Emily who has been a, a Teach for America core member herself and also worked for Teach First UK. And Emily, you're welcome to say more about that, please, uh, if you'd like. But uh, the three of us then came together and started thinking about what it would be like to bring together a body of research looking at different varieties of the Teach for All constellation of programs around the world. Given that there's been so much research published about Teach for America in the States. There's a fair amount of research published about Teach First UK in, in the United Kingdom, but so much less research about the other affiliate programs around the world, and yet they're proliferating at such a rapid rate. And so we just thought that the time was ripe to really think about coalescing a group of scholars to do a book together about these different programs that's empirically based, theoretically rigorous, and really investigate some of the, the many phenomena 
that are related to the Teach for All program and the Teach for All kind of movement, if you will. Okay, before we get into the global phenomena, maybe we could kind of get back to the TFA origins, Teach for America. Can you talk about where TFA, or Teach for America, came from, uh, some of its growing pains, as well as some of the controversies surrounding the program? Sure, absolutely. So Teach for America was conceptualized by a woman named Wendy Kopp while she was completing her undergraduate degree at Princeton University. And she ended up writing her 1989 uh, undergraduate honors thesis about this idea of a national teacher corps. So if you think back to your American history in, in the educational space, we know that this was not so far away from the A Nation at Risk report that came out in 1983. It's also at the very end of the kind of Reagan and, and Thatcher era, and, and we see a total different shift in the way that people are thinking about the education space and, and politics and and those involvements together. So it's not particularly surprising that these ideas of launching a, a service corps, if you will, of teachers emerged at the late 1980s as part of Wendy Kopp's court or her undergraduate thesis. And it was modeled off of a number of other service programs, including the Peace Corps and a couple of others that were looking to capitalize on some of the enthusiasm and the idealism of young people and to kind of encourage them to take two years of, of their lives and commit them to some kind of service, uh, particularly with a focus on educational equity and social justice. And so the program then launched in 1990 with approximately 500 new recruits uh, that were spread out around a number of cities in the United States. And they were committed to teaching for two years in underperforming schools across the country. And so that was quite a remarkable feat for somebody who was just out of university, who raised a remarkable amount of money. I think it was $2.5 million initially, and was able to recruit 500 people to go out and not pursue the career path that they were planning to pursue, but rather to go through this short training program and then become a teacher for two years for this period of time. Building on that initial success in 1990, the program continued to, to develop and, and grow through the 1990s, but it wasn't necessarily always an easy path. And so there were a number of controversies that popped up even immediately in, in 1990. There was a number of articles that were published talking about the program and how it was trying to challenge some of the norms and the structures of traditional teacher education programs, as well as a number of other issues. And they also had issues organizationally in thinking about the funding model and how to grow the organization, which was very nascent and new and emerging as, as an organization called Teach for America that was trying to recruit as many people as possible, trying to prepare them and train them well, and then try to make sure that they were placed in these schools throughout the country. So the 90s were, were a period that, that Wendy Kopp actually refers to as the dark years that was a bit murky in terms of will they be able to sustain their funding? Will they be able to continue recruiting the types of recruits that they're looking for, which um, they would call the best and the brightest, uh, trying to compel America's best and brightest to go teach in schools for two years? And of course, trying to liaise and, and negotiate relationships with teachers unions and universities and education journalists and other people that may not be so uh, supportive of a program like Teach for America. And yet we see into the 2000s just the immense growth of the program as it continued to expand both in the number of regions across the United States where they were uh, placing their teachers, but also in the number of core members, uh, which is what they call their teachers, uh, that they were recruiting 
these uh, generally really high achieving university graduates from some of the most elite universities in the United States, that they were able to place these core members throughout the United States in really large numbers, um, thousands of, of core members each year. And that continued through into the, the 2010s, I guess. I don't know, is that what we call it? I'm not really sure. But uh, into the 2010s, we saw that continued growth uh, in the number of core members as well as the number of regions. Currently, Teach for America has approximately 50 different regions where it places its core members. And the numbers of core members have really fluctuated a lot in the last uh, 10 or 15 years where we've saw, seen numbers between you know two and 3,000 core members all the way up to, uh, I think, 7,000 7, was one of the higher numbers. But starting in the 2000s, then, we started to see even more kind of controversial comments coming out about the program. So Barbara Veltri was one of the earlier authors to write a book about the Teach for America experience, and she wrote her book in 2010 based on her experience as a teacher educator working with many of the Teach for America core members. Katie Crawford Garrett, who's here on the call with us today, one of our co-editors, her book came out a couple years later. And then we, we started seeing a number of counter-narratives coming out. So Jameson Brewer's book, in 2015, Sarah Matsui also came out, her book came out in 2015. And these were firsthand accounts of Teach for America core members, people who had gone through the program and somehow along the way become disenfranchised in some, in some sense. And so they were trying to share their experience, talk about the insider perspective of what it was like to be a Teach for America core member. And these new publications, um, as well as some other issues, started to gain traction in the public media. And so the perception of Teach for America, I think, in some ways started to change a little bit. And it didn't didn't end up being quite as popular or maybe the golden child kind of phenomenon as, as it had been previously. And consequently, I think, uh, related to that, we saw some of the recruitment numbers for Teach for America core members start to decline a little bit. So it's been a really interesting trajectory. We think about the program starting in 1990, and here we are in 2021. So Teach for America has now been around more than 30 years. It has certainly weathered some storms in terms of trying to navigate its path as a, as a small and emerging organization that's now grown to become arguably one of the largest influences on American education uh, that we've seen in the last 50 years. And to date, it's currently the single largest provider of teachers in the United States. So if we think about other institutions uh, like large universities that might put out a certain number of teachers each year, Teach for America, if we consider that as a provider, a singular provider of teachers, produces the largest number of teachers on an annual basis. So that's quite remarkable when you think of uh, the growth of a program that really launched as an idea coming out of an undergraduate research thesis that has now grown to become one of the most formidable influences, not only in the teaching and teacher education space, but also in education policy work across the United States. Yeah, we'll get into some of those policy implications in a minute. But uh, but it was during this these ups and down periods that TFA decided to start to expand beyond U.S. shores. Can you Talk a little bit about uh, their decision to work overseas, so why they made that choice, and maybe talk about sort of their growth trajectory, give me a sense of number of countries that DFA operates in. Sure. I'll take that question. So Teach for America, as Matthew said, uh, existed since the 1990, and Teach First was a phenomenon that was started in the UK, uh, initially only England. In 2002, it was launched, and the first cohort was 2003. At this point, when they were thinking about starting this Teach for America type program in the UK, 
there was not any support really from Teach for America for an international affiliate. And that's what I found in my research, which I, I found very surprising um, given the kind of expansion uh, ambitions of Teach for America in the U.S., but once the US pro or the UK program was successful in launching, getting government backing, getting uh, private dollars behind it, and finding a really elite group of graduates to join it, it really became a success story. And that's when the founder of Teach First, Brett Wigdortz, who is an American actually, um, a former McKinsey consultant, got together with Wendy Kopp and they decided, you know, to launch the Teach for All organization to support many of the people that they were being contacted by in other countries to start something similar to Teach First or Teach for America. So they saw a need or an opportunity to support their model going going international. But to do that first, they, they did ask McKinsey to help kind of research how Teach for All as an organization might work. And it was actually incubated within Teach for America. So initially, this once it launched in 2007 at the Clinton Global Initiative Conference, then it was the staff was placed within Teach for America offices. They shared tax reports and funding to help Teach for All get started. But now it is a truly global organization that has staff across the regions and countries it works in. The number now, I believe, is up to 59 countries that uh, have a Teach America, Teach First model, um, which in our book, we just call the TFL model. And that's kind of the amazing story of how it started quickly proliferated to, to many, many different locations. Yeah, that's amazing. You've mentioned that, that there's research done on Teach for America program. You've done some of it yourselves, but this book is really the first research into sort of Teach for All operations on the ground in various countries it operates in. Can you, can you begin by talking about sort of similarities and differences between TFA programs in different parts of the world? Sure, I can tackle that question. So our book brings together a really diverse collection of research across some of these different affiliate programs around the world. And as Emily just mentioned, there are currently 59 programs. So of course, it would be impossible to talk about all of them collectively because they are not necessarily identical across all of these contexts. And in some cases, I think people assume that it's the exact same type of program in every single country. But in reality, there are some differences. And some of those differences are certainly borne out in the chapters in this particular book, as well as in others' research that people have conducted. So for example, in some countries, teachers who are recruited to be part of that country's Teach for All program they might be teaching at the primary level in primary or elementary education. They might be teaching at the secondary level. Uh, some countries also include pre-primary or early childhood education. And in other countries, they might only focus on secondary, let's say, or they might only focus on primary. So the level and relatedly the content area or the subject that the teachers might be teaching can vary somewhat across these different contexts. Secondly, we see differences in terms of the locales or the types of schools where the teachers are teaching. So in some countries, uh, it tends to be much more urban environments where they're placing their teachers. In others, it tends to be much more rural. And so in, in our book, one of the chapters looks at a program in China where these elite graduates are sent primarily to rural areas to engage in this type of work. And that's a very different context than some of the other countries where Teach for All is operating that are primarily based in urban centers. So that can be a fairly large difference as well. Thirdly, I would say that the 
the training process and the university partnerships that many of the Teach for All organizations utilize as part of their their package, uh, their program, their structure, if you will, can vary somewhat. And so in some instances, the Teach for All programs are partnered with really elite and well-established historic universities. Uh, In other cases, they are partnering with more kind of public-private collaborations, or in some cases, for-profit organizations that are doing the work of training and supporting the teachers in these different spaces. And so there are a number of different arrangements that are utilized in terms of how to support these particular teachers as they go about their work. And of course, there are other particularities of the context where Teach for All has programming in terms of the education policy context or the different structures of education where these teachers are working. And so obviously, the Teach for All programming has, by necessity, needed to adapt itself somewhat to the context to make sure that it's still able to function in a way that is consistent with the the Teach for All guiding principles, but also reflective of the local context in which it's working. That said, there are a number of really stark and strong similarities uh, that exist across these programs, uh, these 59 programs. And so one of them is this idea of the best and the brightest. So to galvanize support for these programs, they utilize the discourse of recruiting the nation's best and brightest to, to commit two years of service to work in underserved and underperforming schools in order to basically tackle issues related to educational inequity and social justice. And so across the context, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Lebanon, we have a chapter about Lebanon in our book, uh, or Bangladesh, uh, same thing, or other countries, we, we see this really consistent discourse of recruiting the best and the brightest. And that's not necessarily bad. Of course, we want really bright and committed teachers to be working in education, but it can be challenging in the way that it, it might position other teachers who have not gone through the Teach for All program. Are they considered also really good teachers? Are they engaged in high quality teaching and learning in their classroom spaces? And so how does it kind of distinguish between these different teachers? And is that a productive discourse for the education field in general? A second similarity that I alluded to earlier is this two-year period of service in these particular schools. And so across these 59 contexts, we see a really consistent emphasis or uh, requirement that the teachers complete two years of service in their school in order to be considered an alumni of that particular program in that country and an alumni of the Teach for All kind of network, if you will. Um, And I think this one's really interesting because there are a number of other programs in the U.S. that borrow somewhat from the Teach for America model. They might draw on a residency type of model, but they actually have three years of service or they have a a kind of three plus another year of year of service. So a year of training and then three years of teaching. Um, There are a number of other kind of slightly different models that do exist out there. And there was a, a special issue of a journal in, in the United States where there was, this was debated about this two or three years of service. And in that particular issue, it was basically just argued by Wendy Kopp and others that, that it kind of needs to be two years of service. And I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of the research in teacher education shows that teachers really start to improve in their craft as teachers once we hit the three-year mark, once we hit the five-year mark, um, is when really teachers really start to get their stride. So Um, It's interesting that that's one of the consistent similarities across these different programs. And then the third and final similarity that I'll mention for now, and my colleagues can certainly jump in if they have others, is the emphasis on 
the alumni of the program and using them to try to build uh, this network or to advance the movement, the movement to reduce or end educational inequity around the world. And so many of these organizations really emphasize putting their teachers through their two years of service, supporting them through that, and then afterwards, empowering them to go on and affect change at higher levels. So affect change by working with policy, education policy, affect change by becoming a politician or a policymaker themselves uh, and able to affect change that way, or to work on any other number of spaces uh, in the social sectors to really tackle issues of educational inequality, but using their, their networks, their social capital, and now their experience in classrooms to help advance this movement that uh, has been propagated by Teach for All. And that's really part of the, the two-part theory of change that we see as a similarity existing across these different organizations. The first part of the theory of change is to recruit the best and the brightest to complete their two years of service in schools. The second part of the theory of change then is after they've completed that service to really position them and empower them to go on and affect change at a much higher systemic level. Yeah, I'd be curious to explore that connection between service and advocacy or activism. But before we go there, maybe we could take a brief tour around some of the countries that TFA is operating. Uh, the bulk of your book are essays from people writing about experience on the ground in different parts of the world. Maybe you guys can start with Europe and talk about a sort of illustrative case of Teach for All in a European country, and then we'll kind of take a look at other parts of the world. Sure. Well, our book features four chapters kind of discussing different forms of Teach for All in, in Europe, which currently has 16 Teach for All programs. Chapter four by Katrine Nesji uh, looks at the origins of Teach for First Norway, which is a really interesting case because they're not officially part of the Teach for All network, but work closely with Teach First UK and liaison with Teach for All. It's not officially part of the network because it was started by a partnership between the Oslo Educational Authorities, the University of Oslo, and um, most significantly, the energy company Equinor. So um, because it, those stakeholders combined worked on the program and, and kind of were responsible for it, it wasn't independent an independent NGO, which the Teach for All model requires, or the Teach for All organization requires all models to be. But her chapter is, again, a fascinating look at how the Teach First idea taken from more of the UK context was was transported and, and adapted to the Oslo educational context. We also have a chapter that looks at Teach for All in Spain by Gio Sora, and he takes a look more closely at the philanthropic networks that started Teach for All in Spain and how these new philanthropic networks have translated really the discourse about teachers and how new teachers need to be brought in and yet perform a bit differently. Geo mainly centers on the philanthropic networks and how they're changing discourses in Spain around uh, who should become a teacher and what teacher professionalism means. We also have a chapter by Alex Southern that looks at Teach First in Wales, which is a different context than England, even though it's still in the UK. Teach First UK only operated in England for many years and then expanded into Wales and she looks at how discourse used by Teach First trainees from the program differs and, and connects as well in, in a different way with traditional trainees within the university context. So the university in the UK context does partner with Teach First and helps 
train all of its recruits, unlike Teach for America. So again, it's, it's a really interesting look at kind of the comparison of, of trainees of, of the traditional type and of the Teach First program. Uh, and finally, in Europe, we have uh, one more chapter looking at Teach for Austria and Teach for Bulgaria by Sarah Snyder and Herman Abs. And their study was unique in the sense it was a semi-experimental quantitative design looking at how teachers within these programs are supported in their schools by their principals. So people looking for a deeper look at actual implementation in schools and expectations of those principals for these recruits will find that chapter 12 really interesting. Some had already brought up that there's a Teach for All program in China, but can you take us on a tour of what your book talks about for Asian Teach for All programs? Yes, I can address those chapters. As you noted, we have a chapter included about China. And this chapter by Yin and Dooley draws closely on the work of Bourdieu as a lens through which to focus on the experiences of teacher participants in an alternative certification program in China. What's really interesting about this chapter is that they examine the various forms of capital that these teachers accrue through participation in the program, even as they are tasked with addressing inequality in China. So it's an interesting take on how social capital works in that context. There's another chapter focused on Asia, and it focuses in on Bangladesh by Adhikari and Lingard. This chapter is also really fascinating. It looks at the ways that Teach for Bangladesh acts as a social enterprise, and the way that they analyze this phenomenon is through looking in depth at an interview with the founder of Teach for Bangladesh who was born in the U.S. but grew up traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Bangladesh. And they're able, through looking at that interview, they're able to unpack the ways in which entrepreneurial discourses are shaping the policy context of Bangladesh and the Teach for Bangladesh program. As you note that the book is not organized geographically, but thematically, and, and some of the topics we're talking about, the foundation and diffusion of the program, and some of these chapters about different countries are part of discussions of policy or leadership. But as long as we're out kind of on a tour, um, mentioned Lebanon, so I know the Middle East countries are involved, also some African countries. Can you talk about how Teach for All has worked in those parts of the world? Yes, I'll address those as well. And I'll also just give a plug to my colleague, Matthew, who's been doing some discourse analysis work on the websites of some of the other programs in Africa. So that's something to look for. And it does seem like the Teach for All presence on the continent of Africa is expanding rapidly. So that's definitely an area where more research could be done. The chapter that we have in our book actually focuses on South Africa, which is no longer officially affiliated as a Teach for All network partner. But it was at one time, and this study is really interesting because the author compares Teach South Africa with Teach First UK and looks at first all of the differences in these really divergent contexts, you know, South Africa being a colonized country and the UK being the colonizer. But then she goes on to also look at the similarities and identifies two significant commonalities across these two contexts, one being 
the institutional discourses that are used. And that also refers back to what Matthew was talking about in terms of this discourse of the best and the brightest. But she also looks at the neoliberal structures that underpin each program. So it's a really fascinating contrast of Teach South Africa and Teach First UK. And that's by Jenny Elliott. And then the chapter on Lebanon is also really interesting. It focuses on recruitment strategies, specifically how it attracts recruits to the program by drawing on human capital and development paradigms, and also utilizes the language of globalization and notions of leadership to attract, to attract quote, high quality candidates to the program. And Matt, I want to give you a chance to talk about what's going on in Australia, where you teach. But as you know, the, the chapter in Australia is talking about pedagogical and curriculum complexities. And I know one of the issues that I followed in the U.S. is the fact that TFA teachers receive weeks of training versus a year or two of training that happens in traditional education schools. Can you talk a little bit about the Australian experience, but also give a sense of how that brief training before being put on the field manifesting itself in both Australia, but also throughout other TFL programs in other parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. So in this particular chapter in our book, Julianne Moss and colleagues, as you mentioned, use complexity theory as a way to analyze both the existing landscape of education and teacher education in Australia, but also this the, these processes of preparing uh, the teachers that participate in the Teach for All program here in Australia, which these teachers are known as associates here. And so they, they're really trying to analyze this process of teaching and learning with the associates as well as supporting them as they complete the program. And it's, it's really quite in a unique context, as, as you've uh, outlined there previously, thinking about some of these university partnerships and the structures and the models that are used to prepare teachers that go through Teach for All programs. And we might highlight, for example, the fact that Teach for Australia has been around a number of years, slightly more than 10 years, and in that period of time has partnered with three different universities. Uh, so initially it was partnering with the University of Melbourne, then it was partnering with Deakin University, and most recently it's been partnering with Australia Catholic University. And so in contrast to some other contexts, perhaps like we might say in the United States, where there's been one singular university partner for many, many years, for example, like the University of Pennsylvania has been in uh, Philadelphia partnering with, with Teach for America there. We've seen a change over time of the different university partners here in Australia. And I know similar issues have, have emerged in, in contexts like New Zealand. And Katie might want to talk more about her programs of research in New Zealand related to that as well. But I think from a historical perspective, that, that lends itself or creates some challenges in terms of not necessarily having a long and enduring relationship between the Teach for All partner and the university partner in that particular country. Um, and some of my own work with Elizabeth Lefebvre in the United States looking at Teach for America has really highlighted some of the tensions that can emerge when we have Teach for All teachers or core members or associates or whatever it is that they're called in that particular country participating in traditional teacher education that may or may not be really designed for them or tailored for them. Um, and sometimes that, that can really create some, some complexities 
um, and certainly some tensions that I know I experienced as a teacher educator who worked with Teacher America Corps members in the United States. So this particular chapter, I think, is, is really fascinating in that regard. And in particular, when we think about a context like Australia, where obviously we have a massive geographical landmass and we have comparatively small population size, approximately 25 million people spread across a really large landmass. And so these associates in Australia are sent to a number of different states and territories, but they're all trained centrally at a singular institution. And obviously that just creates some challenges as well. So I think that's something that that this chapter really highlights is some of the unique affordances and challenges that can be experienced by these types of partnerships and relationships that involve the Teach for All organization itself, the university, of course, the teacher educators who are charged with helping to prepare and support the, in this case, associates. And then, of course, the associates themselves that are the ones who go out and spend these two years teaching uh, in schools across the country. Katie, anything you want to add about New Zealand? Well, one of the really fascinating things about New Zealand, you know, the, the this work is not included in our book, but it's I've spent a lot of time researching Teach First New Zealand, which is now called Akumatatupu, is the way that they've evolved. They've evolved the program in really interesting ways in response to some critiques that they've received and in response to the context of the country. So some of those evolutions have included, most recently, they've focused on recentering indigenous ways of knowing or Maori epistemologies as central to the program. So a lot of the language that they use in the program, they're using Maori or Pacifica words or phrases as a way to be responsive to the cultural context in New Zealand they also, they sort of distance themselves from the notions of the best and brightest that we've been talking about. And they've engaged in wider recruitment efforts aimed at getting more diverse participants who might not be coming right from an elite university, but who may have been working in another field for the past couple of decades even and want to pursue a career in teaching. One of the most interesting changes that's occurred, um, and this gets at what Matthew was talking about a little bit with Australia and the, the university partnerships, is Teach First New Zealand started in a close partnership with the University of Auckland, which is one of the most prestigious universities in the country. Um, it lent their program, for sure, some validity at the beginning. They then switched to a different tertiary partner. And since that time, they've now moved to being their own certification provider. So they're no longer partnered with any other university type entity. And that's caused a lot of controversy. In fact, the most recent time I was there in 2019, someone on the staff told me that they're also no longer allowed to recruit on university campuses at all. So there's definitely a real sense of rancor between the university and the organization. So they see themselves as still um, implementing the teach for all theory of change and actually serving as a model in some ways for other teach for all programs that might be working in communities or spaces with a high number of indigenous students as a way to be more 
culturally responsive. So it's it's just been a really fascinating evolution to look at. Yeah, this sort of got me thinking. I was reading through your book. The expansion was obviously bringing an originally U.S.-based program overseas, but as it's evolved, have you discerned that there are either controversies or competitions for change that might be impacting the program as a whole? In other words, might Teach for America be different now based on the global exposure and influence it's had? Well, I'll say one quick thing about that, and then um, hopefully my colleagues will jump in. It's just that, again, when I was in New Zealand in 2019, one thing I noticed was that they had some visiting fellows. One was from Colombia. They had someone arriving from Nepal. And then one of their staff members had just come back from Minnesota, I believe it was Minnesota, doing some work with the Teach for America Native Alliance. So there seems to be a concerted effort on cross-pollinating different ideas and this sort of learning across country context. And of course, that happens at their global conference as well. But but I'll let others jump into this question also. Yeah, I think we do see in Teach for All a concerted effort to bring together network partners and what they call themselves their, their learning lab uh, to exchange ideas on practice uh, and support one another in and not only teaching, but also in their um, efforts as alumni to move their movement forward in various ways. At the same time, it's interesting to see that Teach for America and Teach First, the original partners, you know, they're also very much focused on their their own context. And there's there's local forces or national forces in each country that that differ a lot. And each program has, to some extent, some focus on on really navigating and continuing to thrive in that context. So, I mean, it, in Teach First here in the UK, I, there's lo- there's exchanges with staff I've learned of, and there's other ways that they have participated in the network. And at the same time, as our chapter by Jenny Elliott shows with Teach, Teach South Africa, you know, there is a very limited interaction between current teachers and current staff uh, in participating in, in the wider network um, in some of the and Teach First and probably you know, a number of other of the Teach For programs. And again, I think that speaks to, you know, again, the focus of a lot of the organizations on navigating their own context with their own interests and, and controversies and, and efforts to locate funding and so forth. All the challenges of running a social enterprise. But it must be said that you know, Wendy Kopp did leave Teach for America in 2013 to become the head of, of Teach for All. And so her influence and, and the influence of a key early Teach for All programs, one that comes to mind is Insignia Chile, headed by uh, Thomas Ricard. Kind of the earlier, I think, Teach for programs help lead the organization as a whole, and f- for that reason, probably have more influence in newer leaders within it. But that's something that research should explore, because you know, there's a big question around you know, what are the relationships between these organizations? Is there is there really equality, or is there flow from you know, Western expertise to other countries, more developing contexts, you know, it, so is, what are the power differentials among the different Teach For programs and how, you know, how that net- network is actually played out um, in reality? Just to add to that briefly, I, I think that as Emily talked about the power differentials, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about some of these dynamics within the broader Teach For All network. And so in some of my own research in the States with Elizabeth Lefebvre, we've been interviewing a number of Teach for America core members across the last several years. 
And most recently in our, in our round of interviews, we asked many of them about Teach for All programs in other countries. And I think Beth and I were both surprised how few of the Teach for America core members were aware of Teach for All programs in other countries. And so that was a little bit surprising, but it might be, as, as Emily suggested, I think perhaps that Teach for America core members in the U.S. or Teach First fellows in the U.K. may be less aware of Teach for All as a broader network and some of its specific affiliate programs than some of those affiliate programs are of the broader Teach for America and Teach for All networks, perhaps, let's say, from Africa. Um, and so we, we might see some of these geopolitics, I think, playing out in, in these dynamics as well in terms of the orientation where people are coming from and some of the histories related to educational systems around the world, and certainly related to, to aspects of mobility as well, as Katie alluded to, and kind of the ways in which individuals and ideas flow across the network of Teach for All. I think a second interesting example can be found in, in Sarah's, Sarah Lamb's recent book, focusing on Teach for China, where at its inception, Teach for China was accepting applicants from the United States to go participate in Teach for China in China. Um, and being able to speak Chinese was, was not a requirement of that. And so that's a really interesting context. If you're recruiting people from the U.S. who aren't able to speak Chinese to go participate in, in the Teach for China program, that policy and that kind of angle, I think, has, has since subsided and, and stopped in, in the Teach for China program. But um, certainly is another example or indicator of the potential Americanness of, of some of the programming around the world. And I think third and finally, on, on just a conceptual level, some of us have been thinking about some of Nancy Fraser's work around the ideas of progressive neoliberalism and the ways in which Teach for America and perhaps some of the other Teach for All affiliate programs have been utilizing the, the progressivism associated with discourses and structures of, of social justice and educational inequality and combining them then with, with neoliberal uh, mechanisms or approaches. So w we sometimes see this kind of championing and this call to eradicate or reduce educational inequality. But in order to achieve that, we utilize some of the tools of the private sector or of corporate culture and other aspects of, of deregulation that might come along with neoliberalism. And certainly many others have written about the individualism that can be rampant among uh, some of these programs as well. So I, I think that's another area where, as Emily said, probably more research is necessary to think through to what extent progressive neoliberalism is manifested in teach for all programs around the world outside of the United States? And is there a lingering or a lasting influence? And if so, to what extent? Okay, well, a fascinating conversation. And just wrapping up, maybe if, if each of you can just give a, sort of some brief thoughts on either where you think teach for all is going to be going, or at least what the research agenda should be for understanding what it's doing as it gets there. I'll start with that one. I think one thing that we, we all feel strongly about is that more research needs to be done in this area. And one of the things we noted in the book is the challenge sometimes of getting access to the research sites. You know, some of the studies included in the book, the, the researcher was really creative in how, how they got access to teach for all participants or to the program. Sometimes it was through the university partner, like in the case of, of Australia, they were working at one of the collaborating institutions and, and so was Alex Southern in the Wales chapter. 
Other researchers used public documents like Rolf Straubhar in the last chapter analyzed speakers from the Teach for All talk series as central to his chapter. But really what needs to happen is that there needs to be more access to the daily operations of the Teach for All programs to really understand their impact on education. I know when I was in New Zealand, I I was very lucky in some ways to get access. But the second time that I went back, the access was much more difficult, partly because in the interim, I had published some articles about the organization. And so I think all of us as researchers would hope that more access would be possible in the future so that we can really understand the impact of this organization, especially as it expands in reach and scope so rapidly. I in looking forward at what research needs to be done or is being done, there is just so many ways to take research on this topic, considering the size of the organization and, and its impact worldwide. My current work looks a bit more at the relationship between Teach for All programs and the teacher education sector. Early on, you asked about, again, the evolution of Teach for America and, and how it's how it's changed as well. And one of those key aspects is really its relationship with teacher education. Because as, as Matthew said, it started out really as a an alternative to the university pathway. It marketed itself as an alternative for its its short length of training in the summer and then starting as a full time teacher. And that positioning was a bit misleading because as Teach for America grew, it partnered with universities across the country to provide ongoing training, such as a master's in teaching in its different regions. So, you know, while Teach for America retained its, you know, control of the program and its summer training, you know, universities took up a lot of that training position during the two years of the the recruits teaching. And as I said, in Teach First, you know, the universities were always responsible for the training as mandated by law in this country. Or in the UK. Again, that's not the same relationship Teach for America has with universities now, with new graduate schools of education that are very practice based and not an actual higher education institute. Relay uh, comes to mind as Relay Graduate School of Education comes to mind as, as again, the most prominent and that Teach for America is beginning to use in, in dozens of its regions as the uh, distance. A trainer for its recruits. So it's relying less on universities than it used to. And the same in, in the UK, while Teach First uses universities to train its recruits, its relationships with universities has changed a lot over you know the past 15 years. And as Matthew mentioned, Teach for Australia has, has had different relationships with universities. So, so really looking at the university relationship with Teach for All programs or the lack of any uh, university partner is common in Teach for programs. So understanding really what's happening in those those contexts and how it's affecting teacher education in universities is is ripe area for research that I'm working in. Yeah, and just to conclude, I, I think as as we've all articulated, there's there's been a fair amount of research conducted, and and you know that's why we were interested in putting this book together. But it's really emerging. I think we're at the kind of very early stages of this more robust body of research focusing on Teach for All programs around the world. And so that's a really exciting stage. I think there's so many opportunities, as both Emily and Katie mentioned, to delve into specific aspects of a program in a singular country, to conduct comparative studies across Teach for All programs across multiple countries, 
uh, or to look at different units of analysis. So we have very little research, for example, focusing on the experiences and perspectives of students who are taught by teachers that have gone through the Teach for All program in that particular country, or missing from the literature are parents and other community members' perspectives, or in-depth ethnographic research conducted in the classrooms where Teach for All teachers are teaching, and and a whole number of other things. So I think we're really excited about this this kind of growth of the literature in this area, and we feel like we're on the cusp of something much larger as it continues to develop. And we know there are lots of people out there who are interested in this topic, so uh, I guess we would just encourage anyone who is interested or has an idea that they'd like to pursue uh, to certainly reach out to one of us or to one of the other researchers who has been conducting research in this space. And it would be lovely just to see so much more research. So as as Katie suggested, we have a much more nuanced understanding of the Teach for All phenomenon and how it's playing out and impacting different educational systems around the world. Yeah, and a great place to start is by reading, uh, examining Teach for All by my three guests today. Matthew, Emily, Katie, thanks for joining us here on New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that was Matthew Thomas, Emily Rauschenberger, and Catherine Crawford Garrett, team behind Examining Teach for All, International Perspectives on a Growing Global Network from Rutledge. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll join us next time here on New Books Network. (laughs) 